Okay, well, a lot has been going on. There has been a uh, another mass shooting, which is really the the um, proximate cause of this podcast. But the reaction to it ties in with um, my release of my book with Majid Nawaz this week, and um, some of the pushback against that. For instance, the the minor demagogue Deem Obadala, who I uh, collided with on CNN uh, last week got onto Twitter after this shooting, uh, which took place in a community college in Oregon. And uh, because of a rumor that the shooter had asked people their religion before killing them, he speculated that this was the result of new atheism and um, perhaps could be directly tied to me. Uh, but he, was, he, was, um, he made a great show of withholding judgment by way of uh, casting aspersion. So he got on Twitter and he said, uh, Hey friends, I know that many of you don't like Sam Harris, but seriously, don't unfairly link new atheism to this shooting. We don't know the facts yet. That is just a masterpiece of demagoguery. And I mean, this is, this is a point that I then felt I had to spell out on social media. So I wrote a, a short piece on, on um, Facebook and also on Twitter uh, and I'll just I'll just read it to you. I, I think it's important. People are so confused or pretending to be confused about the nature of atheism that it's um, the argument is always that it's just like religion. So Dawkins and I are often accused of being just as fundamentalist as our most fundamentalist adversaries on the religious side of the argument. But this is just a totally fatuous thing to say. I mean, there is there's no analogous doctrine on the side of atheism. So in any case, this is what I wrote. No rational atheist or new atheist holds religion accountable for every idiotic or unethical thing religious people do. We blame a religion only for what its adherents do as a direct result of its doctrines, such as opposing gay marriage or killing apostates. Atheism has no doctrines. It does not demand that a person do anything or refrain from doing anything on the basis of his unbelief. Consequently, to know that someone is an atheist is to know almost nothing about him, apart from the fact that he does not accept the unwarranted claims of any religion. Atheism is simply the condition of not believing in Poseidon or Thor or any of the thousands of dead gods that lie in that graveyard we call mythology. To that extent, everyone knows exactly what it is to be an atheist. The atheist has simply added the god of Abraham to the list of the dead. If a belief in astrology were causing people to go berserk, to deny medical care to their children, or to murder unbelievers, many of us would speak and write about the dangerous stupidity of astrology. This would not be bigotry or intolerance on our part. It would be a plea for basic human sanity. And that is all that an atheist criticism of religious tribalism and superstition ever is. If you understand this, you will recognize any attempt to blame atheism for specific crimes, great or small, for what it is, a fresh act of religious demagoguery. So many people got back to me in response to that, saying, no, 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 atheists believe all kinds of things. Atheism is full of doctrines. You believe things about evolution. You believe things about cosmology. Okay, again, this is confusion. So my response was, yes, atheists harbor all sorts of beliefs, ethical, political, scientific, but they don't get these beliefs from atheism. Rather, their atheism is itself the product of what they believe about science and about the merely human origin of all our books. No rational atheist is dogmatically opposed to believing in God. 
It's just that the evidence for his existence is terrible. It would be trivially easy, in fact, for an omniscient being to write or inspire a book that would remove all doubt about him. Neither the Bible nor the Quran is that sort of book. For instance, if the Old Testament contained a single chapter that resolved the deepest questions of 21st century science, rather than merely telling us how to sacrifice goats and when to stone our daughters to death, I too would be a believer. Now, many people pushed back against this. They thought that there could be no book that could testify to its author's omniscience. I think you're not thinking clearly enough about just how good a book could be uh, written by an omniscient being and uh, what sort of signs could be in there that would demonstrate that it could not possibly have been of human origin. In any case, nothing much turns on this. It's pedantic to fixate too much on the word omniscience. I'm just saying that every rational atheist could be convinced about the reality of God or about the truth of Christianity or any specific religion given sufficient evidence. If Jesus shows up on the White House lawn and starts wielding his magic powers and David Copperfield and all the other magicians can't figure out how he's doing it and he's healing the sick and he's reading minds and he's flying without the aid of technology and he's just just doing the whole superhero dance for us, every scientist would be convinced that something supernatural or, at the very least, totally unique in human history was going on. And we would just wait to be told by this being what the hell that something is. There's a sufficient demonstration that could make believers of all of us skeptics. And so the reality is, is that Atheism is a, simply a position of not being convinced by the unjustified and, and in certain cases, unjustifiable claims of religious people. And that is not, that is not a situation of intellectual parody. You know, as, as Carl Sagan famously said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The extraordinary claims are not on the side of atheism. They're on the side of those who believe that their books were written by the creator of the universe. They're on the side of people who believe that their favorite first-century rabbi rose from the dead and still exists and can read the minds of everyone alive and will be coming back to judge the living and the dead. These are positive claims about the way the world is, and they are claims that trespass on science across the board. So there is no doctrine within atheism at all, really, but a failure to be convinced. Now, it's true that certain atheists can express this failure and express their views about the stupidity of those who are convinced in a way that is hostile and offensive and that people find annoying. That's true. But there is no doctrine within atheism that can lead to behavior of any kind. Religious people have been waiting for this. In particular, Muslim apologists have been waiting for this. They've been waiting for an event that can be tied to atheism. We saw this in the, with the Chapel Hill shootings earlier this year. Again, this joker, Dean Obadala, blamed me and Dawkins for those shootings. There was no evidence at all that this was even a hate crime, in fact. This was just an ordinary triple murder, if that doesn't sound like a total oxymoron. But this guy grew unhinged over a neighbor dispute. And the fact that he was an atheist, there's no sign that that was the cause of his behavior. And again, this is, this is a point that was in the piece I, I wrote. I have to emphasize it again. As critical as I am 
of religion. And as much as I want to spell out the link between belief and dangerous behavior, the link between a belief in jihad and martyrdom and the kinds of violence we see in the Muslim world, for instance, I would never dream of holding religion responsible for every bad thing that religious people do. Most people on earth are religious and have always been. Virtually everything, good or bad, has been done by somebody who believes in God. So every liquor store that has ever been robbed has very likely been robbed by a person of faith. Statistically speaking, there has been nobody else to do the job. Now, if a Muslim robs a liquor store and steals a pound of bacon and kills the cashier, I would not even be slightly tempted to blame Islam for that behavior. It's it's, it's absolutely clear that there are Muslims of whatever degree of religious conviction who can do heinous things that have absolutely nothing to do with their religious beliefs. That just should be obvious. Okay, but it is not obvious to the other side who, who are just waiting to find an atheist doing something heinous so that they can pin it on atheism, as though there's an analogous problem of specific doctrines within atheism producing bad behavior. If we had a text, if we had a text that we deemed sacred, that we deemed infallible, and it said things like, butcher them in their schools, then there'd be a case. And if every time there was a mass shooting by an atheist in a school, we denied the link between this doctrine and the behavior, all the while reaffirming the infallibility of the text in which that line appeared, that would be an analogous situation to what you have in the Muslim world. So find me that group of atheists who are talking about some infallible text that they will defend even when it obviously produces murder and mayhem. It doesn't exist. It will never exist. It's a totally false analogy. But there has been this mass shooting, and in response to it, many readers and listeners have asked me if it has caused me to reconsider my views about guns. And uh, this alerts me to the fact that many of you don't necessarily understand what my views about guns are. I certainly don't align with any predictable political poll on this issue. As I think most of you know, I wrote an article after the Newtown massacre entitled The Riddle of the Gun. And I'm just going to read it in this podcast and in perhaps a few places elaborate on its points. But it was, in fact, one of the most controversial articles I ever wrote because most of the people who like what I'm up to, most of the people who are skeptical of religion and interested in science and interested in the nature of human consciousness and in things like meditation and like to see this convergence of philosophy and science and issues that matter in the real world, most of you tend to not be people who keep arsenals in your homes on the odd chance that you may have to defend yourself against a home invasion. You're not Second Amendment gun fanciers for the most part. And so when I wrote this article, which seemed, at least on balance, to be pro-gun, many of you were just floored. And I heard a lot of despair from otherwise very devoted readers. But many of you, in fact, did not understand my basic position. So I want, I'm going to read the, this essay again, but I want to 
inoculates you against these misunderstandings by putting a few things in view at the outset. Okay, the first thing you need to understand is that my recommendations with respect to gun control are more aggressive, more stringent, more intrusive than any you have heard from any liberal who is bemoaning the status quo in the United States. So it is true to say that there is no politician who has articulated a position on gun control more anti-gun than mine. And my position is a non-starter. I, th I think getting a gun should be genuinely difficult. I think it should be like getting a pilot's license. You should have to be trained. You should, dozens of hours of training should be required to legally own a gun. And I think that background checks and all the rest should be uh, as intrusive as possible at this point. There is no one articulating that position. And those of you who are, are sort of distant from this debate and think that, well, we should just ban guns are not in contact with just how impossible that project is politically and practically in the United States. In the United States, we have 300 million guns on the ground, and we have at least a million people, probably more, for whom gun ownership is the most important variable in their lives. And people who are telling us they would fight a civil war to defend their right to own all the guns they want and all the guns they currently have. And needless to say, these people are quite well armed. So if you can imagine trying to get guns back from these people, you know, the, the, the people who are the, the most, the, the rabid core of the NRA, no one is proposing that. There's no buyback program that's going to get guns out of these people's hands. Uh, so unless you have some magical method of getting hundreds of millions of guns off the street, whatever remedy you suggest has to be applied in a condition where there is already a surfeit of guns. There are guns everywhere. And that is a different scenario than what you have in a country, let's say like the UK, where there are just not that many guns in circulation. Then there's a condition where then you know banning gun ownership may in fact be viable. And I have, you know, I, I'm on two sides of the the ethics of that issue. I, there, there are a few things I think, and you'll hear me talk about them, uh, that uh, run counter to a notion of a ban, even in a condition where we could really start fresh and there, there are no guns yet in existence. But that takes me to my second point, which is everything I say that's in, apparently in defense of a person's right to own a gun goes completely out the window once we have a truly equivalent but non-lethal alternative to a gun. So the moment that Taser or some other company devises a weapon that doesn't kill people but stops them in their tracks and it has the range and reusability and all of the, all of the defensive characteristics of a gun and hopefully better, then I think the argument for owning guns totally evaporates. I'm not a Second Amendment person. I, you know, the, the Constitution is only important to me insofar as it secures sane policy in every present generation. And if things change, if, if technology changes, if the world changes, the Constitution has to change. So the moment we have a non-lethal alternative to guns, everything I say in defense of firearms is canceled. But there is no real alternative 
at the moment. And you just have to see video of cops using their tasers on people and see the, the vagaries of those effects to know that the current generation of tasers don't offer a substitute for a gun. And finally, though I, I do in this essay express open-mindedness about the possibility of putting armed security guards in schools and on college campuses uh, and in any place that we would be worried about a mass shooting. Uh, and I'm actually not, I, you know, if, if we had truly well-trained security guards, I'd be happy to have them uh, more in evidence in this world for reasons that will become obvious. But it's obvious that that is not a fundamental solution to the mass shooting problem. The mass shooting problem may be a problem that can't totally be solved, which is to say that if, if a person is intent upon killing a bunch of innocent people, there will always be a place, a restaurant, a movie theater, a school, a shopping mall, that is sufficiently insecure so as to make that a very easy thing to do. And the only real remedy there, which I do in fact think would change the lethality of these episodes, would be if people internalized a new ethic and sense of responsibility around keeping society safe from this kind of violence. And the analogy I would draw, and I draw this at the end of this essay, although I don't make much of it, is to what you now know would happen in an airplane at 30,000 feet if someone pulled out a knife or a gun or just started trying to open the cabin door. This sort of thing has happened since September 11, 2001, and we now know what happens, right? And we, we knew it a week after September 11th, and no one had to talk about it. Something has changed worldwide, I think very likely in the minds of billions of people. And it is a, a sense of what you have to do as a bystander in the enclosed space of an airplane at 30,000 feet when someone starts misbehaving and trying to essentially bring the plane down. There is nowhere to run on a plane. And everyone understands that whether you're trained or not, whether you have a weapon or not, you have to attack the attacker. Okay, you have to go on offense, and you have to go on offense hard and immediately. And there's nothing to talk about. Imagine someone standing up on a plane now and saying, everyone just stay in your seats. You're all going to be fine. I'm just going to take control of this plane. Right? That is a total non-starter now. But September 11th cured us of the illusion that safety could possibly reside in listening to this person's demands. doesn't matter who you are. You jump on this guy and you start trying to claw his eyes out. Someone hits him low, someone hits him high, someone grabs the weapon hand. I mean, this, is, this has to happen, and it has to happen immediately. Now, I think this sense of just, and it, it, it is really like an animal sense. It was like a, a firmware upgrade of our limbic system. But it is local to an airplane in flight. I don't think it should be. I think if, if someone comes into your classroom and produces a weapon and says, everyone get against the wall, you are in an airplane at 30,000 feet. If someone in particular has already shot someone, just imagine you've, you've already heard shots ring out in the hallway, right? And now this person comes through the door of your classroom. There is nothing to talk about. And if you can run away, great, run away. But if you can't run away, 
everyone has to swarm this person. The reality is that no matter who you are, no matter what gun you're carrying, if five people dive on you and tackle you, your plan will be sufficiently disrupted. I mean, a gun is not magically destructive. A gun is a piece of metal, and if the, and if the barrel is pointed in some innocuous direction, it is not dangerous to anyone. So you grab the shooter's arm, you grab the gun. It's true, someone is very likely going to get injured or killed doing this. And any individual hero who tries to do it is, very, is also very likely going to die. But if everyone does it simultaneously, as they would on a plane, you're in a very different situation. The shooter is in a very different situation. I don't care if he's Delta Force or a Navy SEAL. If 10 people just dive on him, he's going down and there's no way he's going to be able to continue to harm people. But what you have in these situations is some version of compliance where a person with a gun can herd people into some situation where, he's, where he continues to have distance from them and just can shoot away and people are compliant or uh, people, people come up to him serially. You know, one person tries to be a hero, gets shot. Another person tries to be a hero, gets shot. And then you run out of heroes. Or you have people hiding under desks and just getting shot. I mean, this is, we need a new understanding of how to behave in these situations. And luckily, these are incredibly rare situations. This is not the preponderance of gun violence, as you're going to hear in this essay, has nothing to do with mass shootings. In terms of the actual casualties, they are, they are a rounding error in the deluge of gun-related homicides in the United States as horrible as they are, they are not the problem that we have to confront when we're talking about the problem of gun violence. That's a long-winded way of saying, I think there is a response that would make a difference. It's a response that we can all take some responsibility for. Uh, it's something that effortlessly got into our heads after September 11th for the local case of, of an airplane. Uh, and I think this is a, a totally trainable thing there are people who run drills in schools for act, you know, active shooter drills, and you can see video of this online. And far from being terrifying and oppressive to the students, they look incredibly fun, right? I mean, they, they get to tackle the, you know, this, this person who comes through the door, and it's, it's just a, it's probably the most fun they have in the entire year in school. In any case, training for this kind of thing is doable. It's wise. I'm sure it's fun. It's analogous to the sorts of training I've done in martial arts. And people should do it. But short of training, we should just understand that there are situations where you have to react en masse instantly and that that really would change things. And I have a little more of my thinking on violent conflict on my blog. And the first article to which the riddle of the gun was a follow-up was uh, the truth about violence. Uh, there's been a lot of response to that article, and I have not heard anything from law enforcement or people in the military or, or the people I train with, SWAT operators and, and martial artists, I haven't heard pushback on the details there in any important sense. And insofar as I do, I will correct the record. But in any case, I still, I still believe that is a valid resource for how you're thinking, how you should be thinking about potentially lethal encounters with people. And finally, I, I, I just want to say, as I say at the end of this podcast, that um, I acknowledge that this is not everyone's cup of tea. There, there are people who think 
that merely thinking about this stuff is perverse. We are incredibly lucky to live, for the most part, in safe societies. In fact, we, we live in the, in the safest societies that have ever existed in human history. Most of us. Many of us, I should say. Certainly most of the people who have the leisure to listen to a podcast like this. And because we live in a, in a condition where becoming a victim of potentially lethal violence is so unlikely, it seems morbid and in some way intellectually disreputable to even think about this stuff, to think about human violence and, and, and to train in anticipation of ever having to face it. That's crazy. Many of you think that. You know, I hear from people who don't lock their doors at night, and they think that locking their doors would impose upon them and their children a kind of concession to paranoia that would be psychologically and spiritually unhealthy. Uh, well, if you're one of these people, that I think it, it, it may be hard for you to get on board with this consideration. I, I can only say that the, the likelihood of encountering significant violence in your life is not as remote as you might believe, but it is still remote enough that you are likely to avoid it. You know, you're unlikely to be raped. You're unlikely to be assaulted. You're unlikely to be murdered. That's a very good thing. But you're also very likely to meet someone who has encountered violence of this sort. It's a little bit like a car crash. I've never been in a significant car crash, right? But I don't drive with a sense that car crashes don't happen to people like me. And here we are, we are in car crash territory. We're not in plane crash territory. When, when talking about the statistics of violence, even in the safest neighborhoods in our societies. But I will concede that many of you think I've just gone off my rocker every time I write or speak about martial arts or guns or the lethal use of force or, or studying how violence unfolds between people. And, you know, you can just wait for the next podcast. It will not be on this topic. But for those of you who are interested in what I think about guns and in why yet another mass shooting doesn't get me to say, oh, yes, we have to ban guns in the U.S., as if that were possible, listen to this essay with an open mind and realize that it might blow you around a little bit in how you feel about what I'm saying, because I do argue both sides of this. If you're a Second Amendment person, you're going to hate half of what I say. And if you're morbidly afraid of guns, you're also going to hate what I say. My position is, is slightly hard to characterize here. But in any case, my views have not changed uh, since I wrote this, but there may be some points to clarify along the way. And now I give you the riddle of the gun. The Riddle of the Gun Fantasists and zealots can be found on both sides of the debate over guns in America. On the one hand, many gun rights activists reject even the most sensible restrictions on the sale of weapons to the public. On the other, proponents of stricter gun laws often seem unable to understand why a good person would ever want ready access to a loaded firearm. Between these two extremes, we must find grounds for a rational discussion about the problem of gun violence. Unlike most Americans, I stand on both sides of this debate. I understand the apprehension that many people feel toward gun culture, and I share their outrage over the political influence of the National Rifle Association. How is it that we live in a society in which one of the most compelling interests is gun ownership? Where is the science lobby? The safe food lobby? Where's the get-the-Chinese-lead-paint-out-of-our-kids-toys lobby? 
When viewed from any other civilized society on Earth, the primacy of guns in American life seems to be a symptom of collective psychosis. Most of my friends do not own guns and never will. When asked to consider the possibility of keeping firearms for protection, they worry that the mere presence of them in their homes would put them and their families in danger. Can't a gun go off by accident? Wouldn't it be more likely to be used against them in an altercation with a criminal? I'm surrounded by otherwise intelligent people who imagine that the ability to dial 911 is all the protection against violence a sane person ever needs. But unlike my friends, I own several guns and train with them regularly. Every month or two, I spend a full day shooting with a highly qualified instructor. This is an expensive and time-consuming habit, but I view it as part of my responsibility as a gun owner. It's true that my work as a writer has added to my security concerns somewhat, but my involvement with guns goes back decades. I've always wanted to be able to protect myself and my family, and I've never had any illusions about how quickly the police can respond when called. I've expressed my views on self-defense elsewhere. That's in a blog post entitled The Truth About Violence. Suffice it to say, if a person enters your home for the purpose of harming you, you cannot reasonably expect the police to arrive in time to stop him. This is not a fault of the police. It's a problem of physics. Like most gun owners, I understand the ethical importance of guns and cannot honestly wish for a world without them. I suspect that sentiment will shock many readers. Wouldn't any decent person wish for a world without guns? In my view, only someone who doesn't understand violence could wish for such a world. A world without guns is one in which the most aggressive men can do more or less anything they want. It is a world in which a man with a knife can rape and murder a woman in the presence of a dozen witnesses, and none will find the courage to intervene. There have been cases of prison guards, who generally do not carry guns, helplessly standing by as one of their own was stabbed to death by a lone prisoner armed with an improvised blade. The hesitation of bystanders in these situations makes perfect sense, and diffusion of responsibility has little to do with it. The fantasies of many martial artists aside, to go unarmed against a person with a knife is to put oneself in very real peril, regardless of one's training. The same can be said of attacks involving multiple assailants. A world without guns is a world in which no man, not even a member of SEAL Team 6, can reasonably expect to prevail over more than one determined attacker at a time. A world without guns, therefore, is one in which the advantages of youth, size, strength, aggression, and sheer numbers are almost always decisive. Who could be nostalgic for such a world? Of course, owning a gun is not a responsibility that everyone should assume. Most guns kept in the home will never be used for self-defense. They are, in fact, more likely to be used by an unstable person to threaten family members or to commit suicide. However, it seems to me that there is nothing irrational about judging oneself to be psychologically stable and fully committed to the safe handling and ethical use of firearms, if indeed one is. Carrying a gun in public, however, entails even greater responsibility than keeping one at home, and in most states the laws reflect this. Like many gun control advocates, I have serious concerns about letting ordinary citizens walk around armed. Ordinary altercations can become needlessly deadly in the presence of a weapon. A scuffle that exposes a gun in a person's waistband, for instance, can quickly become a fight to the death, where the first person to get his hands on the weapon may feel justified in using it in, quote, self-defense. Most people seem unaware that knives present a similar liability. According to Gallup, 16% of American men carry knives for personal protection. I'm quite sure that most of those men have not thought through the legal, ethical, and game-theoretical implications of drawing a blade in a moment of conflict. 
It is true that brandishing a weapon, whether a gun or a knife, sometimes preempts further violence. But emotions being what they are, it often doesn't. And the owner of the weapon can find himself resorting to deadly force in a circumstance that would not otherwise have called for it. Some facts about guns. 55 million kids went to school on the day that 20 were massacred at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. Even in the United States, therefore, the chances of a child's dying in a school shooting are remote. As my friend Steven Pinker demonstrates in his monumental study of human violence, The Better Angels of Our Nature, our perception of danger is easily distorted by rare events. Is gun violence increasing in the United States? No. But it certainly seems to be when one recalls recent atrocities in Newtown and Aurora. In fact, the overall rate of violent crime has fallen by 22% in the past decade, and 18% in the past five years. As a side note, I think there's been an uptick in the last 12 months or so, but the general trend has been of a massive reduction in all violent crime in the last 20 years. We still have more guns and more gun violence than any other developed country. But the correlation between guns and violence in the United States is far from straightforward. 30% of urban households have at least one firearm. This figure increases to 42% in the suburbs and 60% in the countryside. As one moves away from cities, therefore, the rate of gun ownership doubles. And yet gun violence is primarily a problem in cities. It is the people of Detroit, Oakland, Memphis, Little Rock, and Stockton who are at the greatest risk of being killed by guns. In the weeks since the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary, advocates of stricter gun control have called for a new federal ban on, quote, assault weapons, and for reductions in the number of concealed carry permits issued to private citizens. But the murder rate has fallen precipitously since the federal ban on assault weapons expired in 2004, and this was also a period in which millions of Americans began to carry their guns in public. Many proponents of gun control have observed that the AR-15, the gun that Adam Lanza used to murder 20 children in Newtown, is now the most popular rifle in America. But only 3% of murders in the U.S. are committed with rifles of any type. Seventy mass shootings have occurred in the U.S. since 1982, leaving 543 dead. I don't have the most recent number here, but obviously that has increased a little bit. These crimes were horrific, but 564,452 other homicides took place in the U.S. during that same period. Mass shootings scarcely represent 0.1% of all murders. When talking about the problem of guns in our society, it is easy to lose sight of the worst violence and to become fixated on symbols of violence. Of course, it is important to think about the problem of gun violence in the context of other risks. For instance, it is estimated that 100,000 Americans die each year because doctors and nurses fail to wash their hands properly. Measured in bodies, therefore, the problem of hand washing in hospitals is worse than the problem of guns, even if we include accidents and suicides. But not all deaths are equivalent. A narrow focus on mortality rates does not always do justice to the reality of human suffering. Mass shootings are a marginal concern, even relative to other forms of gun violence, but they cause an unusual degree of terror and grief, particularly when children are targeted. Given the psychological and social costs of certain low-frequency events, it does not seem irrational to allocate disproportionate resources to prevent them. We should also remember that mass killings do not depend on guns. Much has been made in the press about the fact that on the very day 20 children were murdered in Newtown, a man with a knife attempted a similar crime at an elementary school in China. 
At The Atlantic, James Fallows wrote, 22 children injured versus a current count of 20 little children and 8 other people shot dead. That's the difference between a knife and a gun. Guns don't attack children. Psychopaths and sadists do. But guns uniquely allow a psychopath to wreak death and devastation on such a large scale so quickly and easily. America is the only country in which this happens again and again and again. You can look it up. Well, this is more tendentious than it might sound. There has been an epidemic of knife attacks on school children in China in the past two years. As Fallows certainly knows, he is, after all, an expert on China. In some instances, several children were murdered. In March 2010, eight were killed and five injured in a single incident. This is as bad as many mass shootings in the U.S., I'm not denying that guns are more efficient for killing people than knives are, but the truth is that knives are often deadly enough, and the only reliable way for one person to stop a man with a knife is to shoot him. As a side note there, I should emphasize the words reliable and one. The only reliable way for one person to stop a man with a knife is to shoot him. Now, of course, you can, if you have a weapon that gives you a certain range, you know, a long stick or a chair, that is helpful against a person with a knife, and multiple people attacking a person with a knife, armed or not, can certainly stop him. But if you're talking about one person in the presence of a knife-wielding attacker, a gun is certainly your best option, provided you're not already being stabbed. Back to the text. It is reasonable to wish that only virtuous people had guns, but there are now nearly 300 million guns in the United States, and millions more are sold each year. A well-made gun can remain functional for centuries. Any effective regime of gun control, therefore, would require that we remove hundreds of millions of firearms from our streets. As Jeffrey Goldberg points out in The Atlantic, it may no longer be rational to hope that we can solve the problem of gun violence by restricting access to guns, because guns are everywhere, and the only people who will be deterred by stricter laws are precisely those law-abiding citizens who should be able to possess guns for their own protection, and who now constitute one of the primary deterrents to violent crime. This is, of course, a familiar, quote, gun nut talking point, but that doesn't make it wrong. Another problem with liberal dreams of gun control is that the kinds of guns used in the vast majority of crimes would not fall under any plausible weapons ban, and advocates of stricter gun laws who claim to respect the rights of, quote, sportsmen or hunters, and to recognize a legitimate need for, quote, home defense, simply give away the game at the outset. The very guns that law-abiding citizens use for recreation or home defense are, in fact, the problem. In the vast majority of murders committed with firearms, even most mass killings, the weapon used is a handgun. Unless we outlaw and begin confiscating handguns, the weapons best suited for being carried undetected into a classroom, movie theater, restaurant, or shopping mall for the purpose of committing mass murder will remain readily available in the United States. But no one is seriously proposing that we address the problem on this level. In fact, the Supreme Court has recently ruled, twice in 2008 and 2010, that banning handguns would be unconstitutional. Nor is anyone advocating that we deprive hunters of their rifles, and yet any rifle suitable for killing deer is just the sort of gun that will allow even an unskilled shooter to wreak absolute havoc upon innocent men, women, and children at a range of several hundred yards. There is, in fact, no marksman on earth who can shoot a handgun as accurately at distance as you would be able to shoot a rifle fitted with a scope after a few hours of practice. 
The difference in accuracy between short and long guns must be experienced to be understood. Having understood it, you will in no way be consoled to learn that a madman ensconced on the rooftop of a nearby building is armed merely with a, quote, hunting rifle that is legal in all 50 states. The problem, therefore, is that with respect to either factor that makes a gun suitable for mass murder, ease of concealment, a handgun, or range, a rifle, the most common and least stigmatized weapons are among the most dangerous. Gun control advocates seem perversely unaware of this. As a consequence, we routinely hear the terms, quote, semi-automatic and, quote, assault weapon, intoned with misplaced outrage and awe. It is true that a semi-automatic pistol allows a person to shoot and reload slightly more efficiently than a revolver does, but a revolver can be reloaded surprisingly quickly with a device known as a speed loader. These have been in use since the 1970s. It is no exaggeration to say that if we merely had 300 million vintage revolvers in this country, we would still have a terrible problem with gun violence, with no solution in sight. And any person entering a school with a revolver for the purpose of killing kids would most likely be able to keep killing them until he ran out of ammunition, or until good people arrived with guns of their own to stop him. Again, the only footnote I would put here, which I, which I spoke about in the introduction, which I reference again at the end of this piece, is that if we have a new ethic on the ground where unarmed people understand that they have to swarm the shooter, that is another way to bring him down before the cops arrive with guns. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, 47% of all murders in the U.S. are committed with handguns. Again, only 3% are committed with rifles of any type. Twice as many murderers, 6%, use nothing but their bare hands. 13% use knives. Although a semi-automatic rifle like the one Adam Lanza carried to Newtown offers a terrifying advantage over a handgun at distances beyond 20 yards or so, I see no reason to think that the children he murdered would be alive today had he been armed only with a pistol. And in fact, he is reported to have shot them repeatedly and at close range. The worst mass shooting in U.S. history occurred at Virginia Tech in 2007. 32 people were killed and 17 injured. The shooter carried two handguns, a Glock 9mm and a Walther 22, of a make and caliber that will remain legal and ubiquitous unless all handguns are banned. Again, this is not going to happen. It is true that rifles, like the one used in the Newtown attack, fire rounds at a much higher velocity than handguns do. These bullets also tend to tumble and fragment in the body, which makes them more lethal. However, one cannot say in every case that an assault weapon in the wrong hands is a greater threat to innocent life than a handgun. Rifle rounds travel at such high velocity that they sometimes pass through a person's body before tumbling or fragmenting, doing less damage than one would expect from a handgun round. Conversely, these bullets are so light and frangible that they are sometimes stopped by barriers such as doors and wallboard. It is also generally easier to grab the barrel of a rifle and wrest it away from a shooter than it is with a handgun. And rifles are far more difficult to conceal. Approaching the doors of Sandy Hook Elementary, Adam Lanza probably looked every inch the dangerous lunatic with a gun. Had an armed guard been at the school, this could have allowed for a defensive response. Given these facts, it is difficult to say that assault weapons pose a greater risk to the public than handguns do. Regarding ammunition itself, there is not much more to say, because any type suitable for home defense or hunting, and therefore bound to remain legal as long as guns are sold, is also perfect for killing innocent people. The only other variable to consider is the number of rounds a gun can hold. 
because this dictates the frequency with which a shooter must pause to reload. Here the path to increase public safety is reasonably clear. In California and New York, for instance, one cannot buy magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. As a consequence, the moment at which a shooter can be safely tackled by bystanders comes after every 10 shots. 10 is a lot better than 30, of course, but it still requires the action of a true hero, probably several, who just happens to be standing close enough to the shooter to attempt to bring him down, and who is lucky enough to be alive and uninjured after the last barrage. As Jeffrey Goldberg notes, with understandable despair and amazement, the security plans at many schools encourage students to spontaneously arm themselves with pencils and laptops and engage a shooter directly in defense of their lives, all the while forbidding the lawful possession of firearms on campus, no matter what a person's training. As Goldberg says, quote, the existence of these policies suggests that universities know they cannot protect their students during an armed attack. More guns are not the answer until they are. Coverage of the Newtown tragedy and its aftermath has been generally abysmal. In fact, I have never seen the, quote, liberal media conform to right-wing caricatures of itself with such alacrity. I have read articles in which literally everything said about firearms and ballistics has been wrong. I have heard major newscasters mispronounce the names of every weapon and weapons manufacturer more challenging than Colt. I can only imagine the mirth that it has brought to gun right zealous to see automatic and semi-automatic routinely confused, or to hear a major news anchor ominously declare that the shooter had been armed with a, quote, Sig Sauser pistol. This has been more than embarrassing. It has offered a thousand points of proof that, quote, liberal elites don't know anything about what matters when bullets start flying. Consider the sneering response of the New York Times editorial page to Wayne LaPierre, the NRA vice president, after he suggested that we station a police officer at every school in the country. Quote, His solution to the proliferation of guns, including semi-automatic rifles designed to kill people as quickly as possible, is to put more guns in more places. Mr. LaPierre would put a police officer in every school and compel teachers and principals to become armed guards. Mr. LaPierre said the Newtown killing spree, quote, might have been averted if the killer had been confronted by an armed security guard. It's far more likely there would have been a dead armed security guard, just as there would have been even more carnage if civilians had started firing weapons in the Aurora movie theater. The phrase, designed to kill people as quickly as possible, should tell us everything we need to know about the author's grasp of the issue. The entire editorial is worth reading, in fact, because it makes the NRA's response to Newtown seem enlightened by comparison. Gun control advocates appear unable to distinguish situations in which a gun in the hands of a good person would be useless or worse, and those in which it would be likely to save dozens of innocent lives. They're eager to extrapolate from the Aurora shooting to every other possible scene of mass murder. However, a single gunman trying to force his way into a school, or roaming its hallways, or even standing in a classroom surrounded by dead and dying children would be far easier to engage effectively with a gun than James Holmes would have been in a dark and crowded movie theater. Even in the case of the Aurora shooting, it is not ludicrous to suppose that everyone might have been better off had a well-trained person with a gun been at the scene. The liberal commentariat seems to have no awareness of what the phrase well-trained signifies. It happens to include an understanding of what to do and what not to do when the danger of shooting innocent bystanders exists. The fact that bystanders do occasionally get shot, even by police officers, does not prove that putting guns in the hands of good people would be a bad idea. Gun control advocates 
always seem to imagine the worst possible scenario, legions of untrained, delusional vigilantes producing their weapons at a pin drop and firing indiscriminately into a crowd. Most liberals respond derisively to the NRA's suggestion that having armed and vetted men and women in our schools could save lives. Some pointed to a public service announcement put out by the city of Houston, funded by the Department of Homeland Security, in which the possibility of having guns on the scene was never discussed. Several commentators held up this training video in support of the creed, more guns are not the answer. Please take a few moments to watch this footage, and you can find the links in the original version of this blog post. Then try to imagine how a few armed civilians could respond during an attack of this kind. To help your imagination along, watch this short video, again the link is there in the post, in which a motel clerk carrying a concealed weapon shoots an armed robber. The situation isn't perfectly analogous. The wisdom of using deadly force in what might only be a robbery is at least debatable. But is it really so difficult to believe that the shooter might have been helpful during an incident of the sort depicted in Houston? Needless to say, it is easy to see how things can go badly when anyone draws a firearm defensively. But when an armed man enters an office building, restaurant, or school, for the purpose of murdering everyone in sight, things are going very badly already. Imagine being one of the people in the Houston video, trapped in the office, with no recourse but to hide under a desk. Would you really be relieved to know that up until that moment, your workplace had been an impeccably gun-free environment, and that no one, not even your friend who did three tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, would be armed that day? If you found yourself trapped with others in a conference room preparing to attack the shooter with pencils and chairs, can you imagine thinking, I am so glad no one else has a gun because I wouldn't want to get caught in any crossfire. Now, despite what the New York Times and, and dozens of other editorial pages have avowed in the weeks since Newtown, it isn't a vigilante delusion to believe that guns in the hands of good people would improve the odds of survival in deadly encounters of this kind. The delusion is to think that everyone would be better off defending his or her life with furniture. Now, unarmed people can be trained to respond intelligently to violent emergencies and the appropriate drills seem worth doing. If you watch the linked video, you will see that rather than simply terrifying students, these drills can be fun and empowering. Of course, there are no guarantees when tackling a man with a gun, and training of this kind makes sense only for students above a certain age. But such, quote, active shooter drills, if widely taught, would probably reduce the threat of mass killings. However, when a massacre is underway, nothing can generally substitute for the presence of other armed men and women who have been trained to fight with guns. This is why one bothers to call the police. And those who are horrified at the idea of stationing a police officer in every school should be obliged to tell us how long they would like to wait for the police to arrive in the event that they are needed. Declaring schools to be, quote, gun-free zones makes them especially good places to commit mass murder. This is more NRA propaganda that happens to be true. With the exception of the attack on Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in Tucson in 2011, every mass shooting since 1950 has taken place where civilians are forbidden to carry firearms. And then I added a correction here that I, I was since informed that that mall where Gabrielle Giffords was shot was also a gun-free zone. As the parent of a daughter in preschool, I can scarcely imagine the feelings of terror, helplessness, and grief endured by the parents of Newtown. But when I contemplate atrocities of this kind, I do not think of gun control, because it seems extraordinarily unlikely that a deranged and or evil person will ever find it difficult to acquire a firearm in the United States. 
Rather, I think of how differently the situation might have evolved if the school had had an armed, and I have to emphasize, well-trained security guard on campus. I also think of how differently things might have gone if the shooter, who seems to have shown signs of mental illness for years, had been more intrusively engaged by society prior to the attack. But my thoughts soon returned to the armed guard, because our laws generally do not allow us to prevent crime, even when a person's bad intentions are reasonably well understood. As someone who has received repeated death threats, several of them from the same person, I know that little can be done in advance of an attack. In fact, our laws do not even allow us to keep the most violent criminals permanently off our streets. 80% of the people languishing in our maximum security prisons will eventually be released back into society, many having become more violent for their time behind bars. And 70% of those will return to prison after committing further crimes. We live in a country where nonviolent drug offenders receive life sentences, but a man who rapes a 15-year-old girl and cuts off her arms with a hatchet can be paroled for good behavior after eight years, only to kill again. I do not know what explains this impossible distortion of priorities, but given that it exists, I believe that good, trustworthy, and well-trained people should have guns. Preventing low-frequency events like school shootings is probably impossible. If we enact laws that allow us to commit young men who merely scare us to mental institutions, we will surely commit thousands upon thousands of young men who would never have harmed anyone. This leads me to believe that if we care about minimizing the harm caused by the next school shooter, we should focus on stopping him at the doors of the school. To be sure, hiring enough guards to protect our nation's schools would be a daunting task. The security industry is notorious for poor quality control. And there's even reason to worry that many police officers have insufficient training with their guns. But it is clearly possible to hire as many competent guards as we want, should this become a national priority. This is entirely a question of money, not whether it is possible to enlist, train, and equip 100,000 highly qualified men and women to protect our children. As I said at the outset, I do not know how we can solve the problem of gun violence. A renewed ban on, quote, assault weapons nearly the only concrete measure that anyone is talking about, will do very little to make our society safer. It is not, as many advocates seem to believe, an important first step in achieving a sane gun policy with respect to guns. It seems likely to be a symbolic step that delays real thinking about the problem of guns for another decade or more. By all means, let us ban these weapons. But when the next lunatic arrives at a school armed with legal pistols and a dozen 10-round magazines, we should be prepared to talk about how an assault weapons ban was a distraction from the real issue of gun violence. Now, I should say, as a footnote, that that line, by all means, let's ban these weapons, that was a kind of a sop thrown to that side of the um, debate. I don't actually think we should ban those rifles. I think it, it is a distraction and doesn't solve anything and will just energize all the gun nuts in the country. So... Given the reality of the facts on the ground in the United States at the moment, 300 million guns, millions of people for whom the possession of guns is the core of their religion, essentially, Second Amendment fanatics, lovers of their AR-15s, I think banning, quote, assault rifles is not the way to go. One of the greatest impediments to actually solving the riddle of guns in our society is the pious concern that many people have about the intent of the Second Amendment. It should hardly need to be said that despite its brilliance and utility, 
The Constitution of the United States was written by men who could not possibly have foreseen every change that would occur in American society in the ensuing centuries. Even if the Second Amendment guaranteed everyone the right to possess whatever weapon he or she desired, it doesn't, we have since invented weapons that no civilian should be allowed to own. In fact, it can be easily argued that the original intent of the Second Amendment had nothing to do with the right of self-defense, which remains the ethical case to be made for owning a firearm. The amendment seems to have been written to allow states to check the power of the federal government by maintaining their militias. Given the changes that have occurred in our military, and even in our politics, the idea that a few pistols and an AR-15 in every home constitutes a necessary bulwark against totalitarianism is fairly ridiculous. If you believe that the armed forces of the United States might one day come for you, and you think your cache of small arms will suffice to defend you if they do, I've got a black helicopter to sell you. We could do many things to ensure that only fully vetted people could get a licensed firearm. The fact that guns in the U.S. can be legally purchased from private sellers without background checks on the buyers, the so-called gun show loophole, is terrifying. Getting a gun license could be made as difficult as getting a license to fly an airplane, requiring dozens of hours of training. I would certainly be happy to see policy changes like this. In that respect, I support much stricter gun laws. But I'm under no illusions that such restrictions would make it difficult for bad people to acquire guns illegally. Given the level of violence in our society, the ubiquity of guns, and the fact that our penitentiaries function like graduate schools for violent criminals, I think sane, law-abiding people should have access to guns. In that respect, I support the rights of gun owners. Finally, I've said nothing here about what might cause a person like Adam Lanza to enter a school for the purpose of slaughtering innocent children. Clearly, we need more resources in the areas of childhood and teenage mental health. And we need protocols for parents, teachers, and fellow students to follow when a young man in their midst begins to worry them. In the majority of cases, someone planning a public assassination or a mass murder will communicate his intentions to others in advance of the crime. People need to feel personally responsible for acting on this information. And the authorities must be able to do something once the information gets passed along. But again, any law that allows us to commit or imprison people on the basis of a mere perception of risk would guarantee that large numbers of innocent people will be held against their will. Rather than new laws, I believe we need a general shift in our attitude toward public violence, wherein everyone begins to assume some responsibility for containing it. It is worth noting that this shift has already occurred in one area of our lives, without anyone's having received special training, or even agreeing that a change in attitude was necessary. Just imagine how a few men with box cutters would now be greeted by their fellow passengers at 30,000 feet. Perhaps we can find the same resolve on the ground. Okay, so that's where the original essay ended. Uh, but I'll read the, some of these footnotes here because I think these details are important. The first on the topic of storing and handling guns safely. The importance of storing and handling firearms safely and of never growing complacent about this is impossible to exaggerate. In 2010, 606 people died in accidental shootings. 62 of them were children. But deadly risks are everywhere. Six times as many people accidentally drown each year in non-boating-related incidents, and 700 of them are children. This is a country where 47% of homes have guns. There is no question that putting a pool in your yard is as serious a decision as buying a gun. This is another point about which, quote, gun nuts happen to be correct. 
There's a footnote about concealed carry permits. According to one source cited by Goldberg, concealed carry permit holders not only commit fewer crimes than members of the general public, they commit fewer crimes than police officers. It's a pretty astonishing fact. It is certainly possible that in states with stringent requirements, civilians who take the trouble to go through the permitting process will be an unusually scrupulous bunch. Eight million people have been issued concealed carry permits in the United States, but many more gun owners carry illegally or legally in states that do not require permits. Gallup reports that 12% of Americans say they sometimes carry a gun for self-defense. Okay, there's a footnote on more of the reality of where people are actually getting killed by guns. Although Adam Lanza seems to have been the prototypical mass shooter, white, male, mentally unstable, and living outside a large city, the epidemic of gun crime in America is in part the product of urban gang violence. The black community continues to commit and to suffer more than its fair share of this violence. According to the Children's Defense Fund, gun deaths among white children and teens have decreased by 44% over the past three decades, while deaths among black children and teens increased by 30%. Blacks account for only 15% of the youth population but suffer 45% of all child and teen gun deaths. Black males aged 15 to 19 are eight times as likely as their white peers and two and a half times as likely as Hispanics to die by a bullet. And again, these bullets are not coming, by and large, from police officers. These are coming from other black teens, usually in the inner city. The problem of gangs is distinct from the problem of guns. Gang membership answers to a variety of social needs, protection and status foremost among them. But as is the case with many social problems, Gangs answer to a need that they themselves create. A person's reputation within a gang depends upon his demonstrated willingness to harm outsiders. Therefore, the very norms by which one raises one's status within a gang makes gang membership necessary for personal safety. Needless to say, most of the resulting mayhem is accomplished with guns. I've added a note here. However, it would seem that nationwide, only 12% of homicides are gang-related. Our misguided war on drugs is surely an important factor where gangs are concerned. This is another vicious circle. Like prohibition before it, the war on drugs renders the sale of illicit drugs extraordinarily profitable, while requiring that drug dealers function outside the law, protecting their investment and in turf with guns. If we ended our war on drugs, the money that finances most gang activity would disappear, as would one of the primary reasons for gang violence. No doubt gangs would remain, along with other sources of violent crime. But with the war on drugs abandoned, our police, courts, and departments of corrections could focus on the real problem of violence. And finally, another note on um, an active shooter situation. Of course, in many situations, even the best-trained guard would have no chance to draw his gun defensively, or would be unwise to do so. Picture the President of the United States moving through a crowd or delivering a speech. In the event of an assassination attempt, the job of his security detail is to immediately disrupt the shooter's aim, bring him to the ground, and disarm him, and to get the president to safety. Drawing their weapons and returning fire, especially in a crowd, is not part of the plan. But the tactics appropriate to having a dozen guards protecting a high-risk target in a crowd do not extend to every situation involving an active shooter. And one can easily think of circumstances in which members of the Secret Service would need their guns. Okay, so that is the end of the original article. And then, because of the ferocity of the pushback, I wrote a follow-up article uh, entitled FAQ on Violence. I'll read uh, part of it. This is how I summarized some of the response I got. 
Having read many hundreds of responses to my recent article on guns and hundreds more to an earlier post on self-defense, I now realize there are differences in temperament across which it may be impossible to communicate about the reality of human violence. Many people simply do not want to think about this topic in any detail. I concede that given the relative safety in which most of us live, this can be a reasonable attitude to adopt. Most people will do just fine walking the streets of London, Paris, or even New York, oblivious to the possibility that they could be physically attacked. Happily, the odds of avoiding violence are in our favor. Those readers who were appalled by my article on guns seem to recoil at the suggestion that we might want to prepare for an unlikely encounter with evil. What is the best way to respond to a knife attack? How do home invasions actually occur? Such questions can seem the product of an unhealthy imagination. There are people who consider using a burglar alarm at night, or even locking their doors, to be debasing concessions to fear. I have heard from many people in the UK who claim to be greatly relieved that their police do not carry firearms. Encountering my lengthy ruminations on violence and self-defense, these readers have begun to worry about my sanity. Although I might find a few useful things to say to such readers, let me concede that the bar is probably set too high. Thinking about violence is not everyone's cup of tea. Again, I do not consider ignoring the whole business to be necessarily irrational, depending on where one lives or one's responsibility for the security of others, etc. It is irrational, however, to imagine that such insouciance can pass for an informed opinion on how best to respond to violence in the event that it occurs. I have now heard from many people who have never held a gun in their lives, and are proud to say that they never would, but who appear entirely confident in declaiming upon the limitations of firearms as defensive weapons. Before proceeding, perhaps there's a general rule of cognition we might all agree on. It would be surprising indeed if avoiding a topic as a matter of principle were the best way to understand it. Because beliefs about violence can directly impact people's safety, I feel a special responsibility to address some of the questions and criticisms I've received in response to my writing on this topic. Here I will gradually build an FAQ on self-defense, guns, and related matters, revising my responses as needed. Comments can be submitted through the contact page on this website. So and I did that, and um, it's been a while since I've revisited that FAQ. I'm not aware of anything that I recommend being controversial among people who know more than I do about self-defense and firearms and law enforcement. And in this FAQ, I deal with some of the objections that were raised and very likely some of the objections that might have occurred to you while listening to my original article. I talk about the countries that have uh, much stricter gun laws and much less gun violence. Uh, but I'd like to read a few of these questions because uh, I think they're important and some of this material probably should have been in the original article. Here's one. You seem inordinately concerned about violence. As you must know, you are far more likely to die from cancer or heart disease than you are to be the victim of a home invasion. And by keeping guns at the ready for the purpose of self-defense, you seem guilty of the very reasoning bias you describe in the beginning of your essay, wherein one's perception of danger has been distorted by rare, dramatic events. If the statistics tell us anything, they tell us that by owning guns you impose greater risks on yourself and your family than you mitigate. Hence, your own behavior should strike you as both dangerous and irrational. I think you'll agree that's a great question. Okay, here's my answer. I do not believe that it is irrational to prepare for very low probability events which, should they occur, would produce the worst suffering imaginable for oneself and those one loves. 
And as I pointed out in my essay on self-defense, the actual probability of encountering violence, even in the relative safety in which most of us now live, is not as remote as many people think. And again, I would have you consult that essay, but yes, the, the probability of being the victim of a violent crime, even if you live in a very nice area of a very nice city, is not as low as many people think. It is certainly not as low as getting into a plane crash. Here you are talking much more on the order of a risk of one in several hundred each year, not one in a million, or not even one in tens of thousands. Back to the text. There are also several psychological and social benefits to self-defense training, which offer further reasons to engage in it. If I thought, for instance, that practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu made people more fearful and neurotic, I wouldn't recommend it. Or I would tell people to do the absolute minimum to familiarize themselves with the problem of grappling on the ground. But I think BJJ makes people much more confident in the world, and for good reason. The art is so extraordinarily useful in the unlikely event that one needs it, and it also brings many other benefits. Thus, preparing for violence in this way need not be justified by a narrow focus on statistics. Whatever the likelihood of needing to use it for self-defense, BJJ is a good thing to learn. I would extend the same reasoning, albeit less emphatically, to owning and training with firearms. I sleep much better knowing that I'm prepared for certain low-probability but worst-case scenarios, and I find the process of training for them more empowering than onerous. Of course, I realize I am much more likely to die of heart disease than I am to be the victim of a home invasion. I also realize that handling guns and keeping them in my home increases the risk of being accidentally injured or killed by them. I'm also aware that other gun owners occasionally commit suicide or murder members of their families, or both. And it could be that guns are more often used this way than they are to defend against crime. But reliable information on, on the defensive use of firearms is very difficult to come by. But I don't think that these broader statistics apply to me. And I don't think this judgment is the product of a reasoning bias. Just as I can say to a moral certainty that I'm not going to open a meth lab or start a dogfighting ring, I can say that I'm not going to commit suicide or murder my family. There are people who experience much more chaos in their lives who can honestly not say the same. Such people should not own guns. Let's see if there's anything else here. Many other questions. But this entitlement to firearms puts you on a slippery slope. Why not own a tank or a surface-to-air missile? Once again, the fault lies with an unwillingness to think about how violent crime actually occurs. No one has a legitimate need to destroy whole buildings or city blocks in self-defense. I view the question of gun ownership as primarily an ethical one. A couple of sociopaths break into your house for the pleasure of killing you and your family, and the police cannot arrive in time to stop them. What should you be permitted to do in self-defense? That really is the core of it for me. There are certain rare situations, and again, they are rare but not rare enough, where a peaceful, honest person finds himself in the presence of murderous lunatics who may or may not be armed, but very likely are. What should he or she be able to do to protect himself and his family? That is the core case. That is, that is the situation where if you say people should not ever be able to have access to guns, you have said this person should not be able to have access to a gun. And that, I think, is a very hard argument to make, even in a society without guns. Ethically speaking, I think this is a hard case. If you have an island nation where no guns have arrived yet, I mean, it's something like the UK, although I'm sure that's broken down somewhat, but you have a society that has no guns and has strict regulations against them. And the question is, 
Would it be ethical to allow people to have guns along the lines that I have described here? You know, you have to get training analogous to getting a pilot's license to get a gun. That is a hard case for me. I, I think the, the societal benefit of not having guns anywhere available because you have totally stopped the influx, that may outweigh any individual's personal right to have the best weapon available to protect himself or herself. I don't know. I could be argued uh, either way on that topic. And again, the emergence of truly non-lethal alternatives to guns would make the case moot, because then you would give that to the woman who lives alone uh, and who's worried about self-defense. And here, here's a question that just uh, goes to the point of my craziness. Uh, you say that you own, quote, several guns. This makes you sound like a collector or a fanatic. Why would a person need more than one gun for the purpose of home defense? Okay, again, these are the kinds of questions that come from people who just have not been in contact with this issue, have not thought it through. Think about the ways in which, and here's my answer here, think about the ways in which a violent encounter in your home might occur. If you spend most of your time in your downstairs office, a gun in your bedroom will be of little use to you if you have to fight your way to it in the event that an intruder comes through your front door. The goal, from my perspective, is to be able to move away from a threat and arm oneself in the process for the purpose of safely leaving the house with one's family or defending them in place. Thus, the number of guns I own directly relates to the architecture of my house. And I added a note here. Contrary to the bizarre conclusions that many readers draw here, this does not require that I keep a gun in every room. Once again, if thinking about details of this kind strikes you as a symptom of pathological fear, the whole topic of home defense is probably not for you. That you may rest assured that you are unlikely to ever be the victim of a violent crime. And, I, you know, I don't know if there's more to say about that. It's just I, you do encounter people who think that this whole area, I'm sure many of you listening, who think this, that this whole area of interest is perverse and a symptom of pathological fear. Now, in my case, it's, um, I don't know how anyone really thinks that. I mean, you actually know that what I do has raised my security profile to a significant degree. You know that I receive death threats. It's by no means frivolous for me to think in terms of security in my life. But I don't think it's friv frivolous for an ordinary person with no public profile to think about it either. I mean, the, the numbers, the statistics on violent crime are such that it is a low probability event, but it is not so low that you are crazy to take some measures to prepare yourself for it. And again, the, the, the act of preparing for it is not this onerous burden. It is, in fact, a kind of guilty pleasure. It, it is, there's a lot of fun that comes in training in any of these relevant disciplines with firearms, in martial arts. It's a, um, you know, dealing with this area of life, taking some responsibility for it, being your own bodyguard, is not starkly motivated by fear in each moment. I mean, it's, you're, not, you're not feeling fear every time you put on your seatbelt when you get in your car, presumably. You just put it on because it's the wise thing to do, and you understand the physics of a car crash. Well, training in martial arts, training with firearms, is just as free of fear as the act of putting on a seatbelt. And it's a hell of a lot more fun and empowering but again, that does not mean at all that I think everyone should do it. And, I th and as I said in my article, I absolutely think there are people who should not own guns. And I absolutely think it should be harder to get guns. And 
the details of how hard I think it should be certainly put me far beyond the pale from the point of view of gun rights zealots and Second Amendment fanatics. And again, I think I said this somewhere, I probably said this at the top, but the, the restrictions on gun ownership that I advocate are more stringent than those being advocated by anyone in the gun rights debate in the United States. There is no liberal politician who has articulated a position on gun control that is, is as restrictive as what I would advocate. Not President Obama when he gets up there and bemoans that we've done nothing about guns after the next shooting. Not Gabrielle Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly, who have a foundation for this purpose. Not Michael Bloomberg. So again, if I'm a gun nut, right, you got a real problem. Because what I'm advocating is not going to happen. Certainly not in our lifetime, barring some miraculous breakthrough politically and probably technologically in terms of the developing the alternative to a gun. Uh, this is a very important question. Uh, it's amazing how many people are confused about this. You say guns must be properly secured. However, if secured, they won't be available for use in an emergency. You can't be both responsible and well defended. Okay, this is untrue. A gun can be properly secured and yet available in seconds, and a lockbox solves the problem. And I link to an example of a lockbox. It's true that many gun owners do not seem to understand the importance of locking their guns. As a result, hundreds of children are injured or killed each year, tragically and unnecessarily. Again, this is a hugely important issue. If you think that the only way to be prepared to deal with the, the unlikely situation of a home invasion or some other dangerous encounter in your home is to keep your gun loaded in a drawer or out in the open, you don't know anything about guns. I don't care how often you go to the firing range. You can lock a gun up and have it available within seconds. And to store firearms any other way is totally irresponsible. Um, there was a, a lot of pushback on what has been called the swimming pool fallacy. I, I think I should probably address this. Here's the question. It should be a matter of acute embarrassment to you that you have fallen for the NRA's, quote, swimming pool fallacy. Please understand and rectify your error. And this was part of what was written in a response by Sean Faircloth. Uh, Harris drags out the swimming pool canard. You've heard this canard. Children are more likely to die in pools than by getting shot. Therefore, children dying by gun violence should be dismissed as just one of those things. Similar reasoning works like this. Women are about eight times more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than by breast cancer, so all concern about breast cancer is overblown. Please, it is entirely reasonable that society can and should work to address breast cancer and cardiovascular disease, hospital hygiene safety, Harris raises this chestnut too, and handguns. The either-or choice is a rhetorical trick, not a reasoned argument. And here's my response. I'm afraid that Faircloth and many other readers misunderstood the point I was making in my essay. I was not saying that because there are greater sources of injury and death in this world, we needn't bother mitigating the harm caused by firearms. In fact, I was making two different points. The first was that if we value safety, we should keep our fears generally aligned with the facts. Now, according to the CDC, quote, drowning is responsible for more deaths among children one to four than any cause except congenital anomalies, birth defects. 
Among those ages 1 to 14, fatal drowning remains the second leading cause of unintentional injury-related death behind motor vehicle crashes, end quote. I was not minimizing the threat of guns or suggesting an either-or choice as a, quote, rhetorical trick. I was putting the threat in context. The economist Stephen D. Levitt has argued that if you own both, your swimming pool is about 100 times more likely to kill your child than your gun is. Okay, think about that. Okay, if we want to keep our children safe, we should generally be guided by real probabilities. Thus, anyone who lies awake at night worrying about the prospects of another mass shooting but reads email on his smartphone while driving his kids to school has something to learn about relative risk. And anyone who wants to put a swimming pool in his backyard should consider the safety implications, which are analogous to those of owning a gun. The fact that guns are, quote, designed to kill people, while swimming pools aren't, is beside the point. Such word games can be played both ways. A gun is designed to save your life when no other tool will do the job. Swimming pools are just for fun. As far as I can see, statements of this kind have no ethical content. Of course, one of the main concerns of my article was to argue that certain low-probability risks, like mass shootings, might still warrant a response that is disproportionate to the number of deaths they cause. And I mentioned the problem of hygiene in hospitals for this purpose. I suspect that if Faircloth read the following paragraph again, he would understand it differently. I'll read that paragraph again. Of course, it is important to think about the problem of gun violence in the context of other risks. For instance, it is estimated that 100,000 Americans die each year because doctors and nurses fail to wash their hands properly. Measured in bodies, therefore, the problem of hand washing in hospitals is worse than the problem of guns, even if we include accidents and suicides. But not all deaths are equivalent. A narrow focus on mortality rates does not always do justice to the reality of human suffering. Mass shootings are a marginal concern, even relative to other forms of gun violence, but they cause an unusual degree of terror and grief, particularly when children are targeted. Given the psychological and social costs of these low-frequency events, it doesn't seem irrational to allocate disproportionate resources to prevent them. So I was not minimizing the problem of gun violence. I was explaining why it might be rational to consider the most marginal form of gun violence to be a bigger problem than, than it actually is. Faircloth just didn't like the solution I proposed, as many readers don't. But again, the solution is, I think we should have armed security in more places than we do. Whether that's in every school in the U.S. or not, I don't know. But listen, I go into a Whole Foods and I often see a guy with a gun guarding the vegetables, right? Now, this doesn't make me paranoid while shopping, doesn't make me feel unsafe. But if we're willing to put an armed security guard in a supermarket to prevent theft, how is it a moral obscenity to put an armed security guard on a college campus or even a preschool campus to prevent a mass shooting? It's expensive. It may be unrealistically expensive. And again, you want security guards to be far better trained than the average security guard is. But this idea that it's somehow morally abhorrent to do so that intuition comes from people who have a kind of taboo relationship to guns. Guns are, in some sense, magically destructive. But even having an unarmed security guard would be better than no security guard. Uh, but again, I, I, I think the, the most distributed and likely change that would materially change public safety would be a, a different understanding about how ordinary people should respond in these situations. 
And there are other questions. There's, a, you know, why is there a difference between carrying a gun in public versus, or why why don't I recommend in general that people carry firearms in public if I think it's makes sense to keep one in, in your home? I go into the kind of legal and ethical differences there on my FAQ. I push back against some of the Second Amendment people. Uh, I guess so. Read one more final question that that deals with some of the more visceral pushback against this. You're generally such a reasonable person, but on this issue, you have produced one disjointed rationalization after the next. You seem to be making your case on the basis of pure emotion, rather like a religious apologist. Piling hypothetical scenarios on top of YouTube videos does not amount to an ethical argument or prescription for sound public policy. More guns equals more lethal violence. Full stop. That's the beginning and end of the story. The statistics are clear. Any argument in favor of gun ownership for the purpose of self-defense is an argument in favor of needless death. Okay, again, very well-stated question. And um, that is the sort of stark um, criticism I'm up against. Let's see what this does for you. Now seems to me that there are two ways of approaching this discussion that may in fact be irreconcilable. The first is to consider the ethical and practical case for guns as a means of self-defense. To make this case, or even to understand it, one must know something about how human violence evolves at close quarters, and one must care about specific examples. For example, a young mother shoots a knife-wielding intruder. Again, there was a a YouTube video which had a 911 call from a, a young mother who successfully defended herself with a shotgun, I believe, and sort of the ultimate instance of the ethical case for self-defense. That's what's uh, being alluded to in the question. Here it is easy to establish and impossible to deny that guns occasionally save the lives of good people who have every right to defend themselves and their families from malevolent lunatics. The second approach is to consider society as a whole, emphasizing the statistics on gun violence. Here it is easy to establish and impossible to deny that in countries where nearly everyone has a gun, violence tends to be more lethal and suicides and gun accidents more common. Many people seem to think that the broader statistical case trumps the ethical case for self-defense. More guns equals more murders and suicides. End of argument. From this point of view, anyone arguing for the primacy of self-defense appears to be standing in the way of societal progress. Consequently, many people believe that no civilian, no matter how responsible or vulnerable to violence, should be able to possess a weapon as powerful as a gun because any society that would make guns available to such people will, of necessity, be unable to control the sale of guns to dangerous, negligent, and suicidal people who shouldn't have them. Now, I do not accept that argument. I believe that the ethics of self-defense trumps the statistical case for several reasons. First, we simply do not know what the statistics would be if there were more stringent controls on gun ownership. Most gun deaths in the U.S. are suicides, And while the presence of a gun in the home certainly makes suicide easier to accomplish and perhaps more tempting, some of these deaths would occur anyway. There were 38,000 suicides in the U.S. in 2010, half of which were committed with firearms. Gun homicide in the U.S. is mostly the work of career criminals, not the result of ordinary gun owners with no history of violence suddenly going berserk. If we could keep the guns out of the hands of criminals and the mentally unstable, there is little reason to think that the rates of murder and suicide in the U.S. would be inordinately high. Of course, we have completely failed to do this, but taking guns away from responsible people isn't a way of doing it either. 
An ethical argument for the banning of guns must deal with the hard case, where a legal owner of a gun who stores it safely and knows how to use it winds up protecting herself when only a gun would avail. I don't see why a responsible person should be prevented from preparing for the rare encounter with violence just because other people are unfit to own guns. As I've said, the prospect of gun accidents does not decide the matter. It isn't necessarily irrational for a person to incur added risk of injury or death to prepare for certain events that he or she considers worse than mere injury or death. We increase our risk of both every day in far more frivolous ways than by preparing to defend ourselves and our families against the worst possible violence. Many people seem to think that guns radiate danger, rather like plutonium. Needless to say, if millions of our neighbors began asserting their right to maintain private stockpiles of plutonium for the purposes of recreation and self-defense, we would be outraged, and we would derive little comfort from the precautions that, quote, responsible plutonium owners took to handle this material safely. The mere presence of the stuff on our streets would impose an unacceptable risk on everyone. But guns are not like plutonium. They are like cars. The number of homicides, 11,000, suicides, 19,000, and fatal accidents, 600, with firearms, roughly equals the number of highway deaths, 33,000 each year. But when guns kill people, it is almost always because the person who pulled the trigger intended to cause a death, either his own or someone else's. When cars kill people, it is almost always an accident. This strikes me as a very important difference. People are doing their best to stay alive while driving and to avoid harming others and yet are failing at a rate that exceeds that of intentional killing with guns. Judging by the rate of accidental death, cars are much more dangerous than guns. More importantly, we impose much greater risk on our neighbors by driving than we do by keeping guns in our homes. Many readers will object that this is an unfair comparison. Guns are for killing people, while cars serve many necessary purposes. But this objection misses the point. We are talking about the ethics of assuming personal risk of injury or death and of imposing such risk on others. The statistical argument against gun ownership derives all its ethical weight from the following claim. If we banned guns in the United States, we would save many thousands of lives each year. We could make driving much safer than it is at very little cost, and yet we haven't done so for reasons that parallel the concerns of gun owners, while being far less compelling. We could, for instance, limit the speed of all automobiles in the United States, including Ferraris and other high-performance vehicles, to 65 miles per hour. And we could reduce their powers of acceleration so it took over a minute to achieve top speed. How many lives would this save? Surely many thousands. Why haven't we passed a, quote, assault weapons ban of this sort on cars? Probably because it would make driving less fun. Most of us want the freedom to drive faster than a performance ban would permit, faster even than the legal speed limit. We seem to be asserting a freedom to break the law at the cost of thousands of lives each year. This seems ethically indefensible. Despite what many readers will think, this is not a comparison of apples to oranges, or a rhetorical trick designed to obfuscate the problem of gun violence. As I have said, I believe gun regulation should be much stricter than it is. Stricter, in fact, than anyone can reasonably hope for, even in the aftermath of Newtown. But here I'm addressing the claim, generally made by readers living outside the U.S., that guns should be banned altogether, based on the statistics. Never mind that no one can envision doing this in the U.S. I believe the case is flawed, even if the path to a gun ban were clear. A gun makes it relatively easy for a person to kill other people and himself, whether intentionally or by accident. A fast car confers the same power, 
but it is easy to argue that, that a sane, law-abiding person could find himself in a situation where he needs a gun to save his life, and that he should be able to have one despite the attendant risks of gun ownership. It seems grotesque to argue that a person who finds himself endangered by violence in this way should be made to pay, perhaps with his life, for the irresponsibility and criminality of others. I cannot easily make the same argument about a car that drives faster than the maximum speed limit, or that accelerates from 0 to 60 in 4 seconds. And what if most highway fatalities were the result of criminals and suicidal people intentionally crashing their cars? Who would then advocate that we ban all cars or limit their speed for everyone else? In any case, if, there, if there's a good objection to that analogy, I haven't heard it. I think, uh, and again, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more open than I, I sound in certain places here, to the idea that in a country like the UK, where there really aren't many guns, perhaps you could find an even more pristine case than that, banning the introduction of guns might make sense. It still leaves the person, the single mother, home alone with her infant, attacked by a knife-wielding assailant in the lurch. And I think that is a, an unhappy cost. But it, I, I could well envision that if the benefit to society were so enormous the balance would swing in the direction of banning guns. We are simply not in that situation in the United States, and it's very hard to see how we ever could be, apart from the introduction of a non-lethal alternative to a gun that was just as good or hopefully better than a gun at stopping violence. Um, finally, I'll address this the point about uh, assault weapons that I addressed very briefly on the fly while reading the original essay. Your position on banning, quote, assault weapons like the AR-15 is contradictory. In the riddle of the gun, you said that such a ban would be purely symbolic and that these rifles are not objectively more threatening than other guns. But then you said that you would support such a ban, which seems illogical. What is your actual position? Here is my actual position. Point taken. The truth is I am somewhat conflicted about this, and my support for an assault weapons ban is more rhetorical slash political than anything else. As I've said, handguns are the problem. If you aren't dealing with handguns, you aren't addressing the real problem of gun violence. A rifle like an AR-15 is not scary for the reasons that most gun control advocates allege. There is no reason to think that Newtown or Aurora would have been any less tragic had the shooters been armed only with pistols. Rifles are scary because they allow even untrained people to shoot with great accuracy at distances beyond 50 yards. After only a few hours of practice, a person can reliably hit an 18-inch target 400 yards away surpassing the abilities of even the best marksmen on earth with a handgun. Thus, the rational objection to civilian ownership of these weapons is that they give people unwarranted destructive power at a distance. As I've said, hunting rifles pose a similar problem. It is hard to argue that anyone needs an AR-15 for the purposes of self-defense. If you are shooting someone over 50 yards away in, quote, self-defense, something has either gone very wrong with you or with the society in which you live. It is true that many gun owners think it prudent to prepare for the latter case. While I can't entirely fault their logic or their reading of history, and understand that it's a lot of fun to practice with an AR-15, I don't take the civilian need for these guns seriously. So I'm willing to say, in effect, fine, let's ban assault weapons. Now can we talk about the real problem of gun violence? If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. 
Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.